criminal justice system is being used to solve problems it is not equipped to solve. There are so many issues that come before the courts on a daily basis that are mental health issues, that are physical health issues, that are psychological issues people face, that are socioeconomic issues, and that are legacies of colonialism and residential schools. And we use the blunt instrument of the criminal justice system uh, to address these issues, and it's not working. And we need to we need to recognize that, we need to admit it, and we need to go back to the drawing board. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Anna Maria Ananajor is a legal phenom and inspiration among her peers. She holds her BA from the University of Toronto, her Master's of Science from Oxford, and her Civil and Common Law degrees from McGill University, where she graduated gold medalist. Following her education, Anna Maria clerked for Justice Marie Deschamps and Justice Richard Wagner of the Supreme Court of Canada. From there, she spent time in New York with an international law firm focusing on litigation and regulatory compliance, corruption, and white-collar crime. While in New York, she devoted considerable efforts towards pro bono work that resulted in her being awarded the 2014 Pro Bono Publico Award by the New York Legal Aid Society. Since her call to the bar in 2013, she joined the firm Ruby Schiller, where Anna Maria practiced alongside criminal law legend Clayton Ruby. She is now partner of this prestigious firm, recently renamed Ruby Schiller and Anna Najor. Recently, Anna Maria has focused considerable efforts and influence on cannabis legalization reform in Canada. She recently testified before the Senate of Canada and started a petition to grant amnesty for those with criminal records for marijuana possession. Anna Maria's insights on the law, achieving success within it, and how to overcome the challenges faced by racialized lawyers like herself is invaluable. Listen to them all here on this episode of Of Counsel. It's been a long journey to get to law. Uh, I don't have any lawyers in my family and I didn't know what law was about um, until quite later in my life. And I would say even well into my practice, I still didn't completely understand law. But uh, through my undergraduate studies, um, I had a sense that legal thinking or legal reasoning was something that I was interested in. I took one law class while I was an undergrad and I really enjoyed the precision of law. I was studying social sciences um, and history and politics and were, as I really enjoyed that in giving me the substance, the sort of content and the material by which I would understand my world. It was really the law class that taught me how to think about all that stuff. Law was less mushy, it was more precise. Um, I liked how rules were outlined and how they were clear and you either fell afoul of it or you didn't. Um, And I enjoyed the activity or the exercise of reasoning through legal problems and so I thought at that point that law might be something for me. Was there a point where you decided I'm going to be a lawyer. I know for sure this is what I want to do. That's all I want to do. Or was it more of a gradual progression? It was more of a gradual progression. And I guess it's a it's part of my personality that I tend to make pronouncements like that about a lot of things. <laughs> so at some point, I, I think I remember when I was young, I remember saying, I'm going to be a lawyer and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be amazing at it and watch out world. And then two weeks later, I was like, I'm going to be an engineer. <laughs> and then a week later, I was like, I think I'm going to go and study sciences um, and be a doctor. And then three weeks later, it was something else. So I was always jumping around. I always was, I really enjoyed learning as a, as a child. Um, and um, I really enjoyed school and so every subject I sort of gobbled up Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't, law wasn't sort of a standout subject um, only because it's something that you don't really encounter when you're much, when you're quite young. It's something that you only sort of get a real taste of what it means when you're older. 
um, through classes or through professional experiences. And so even after my undergrad, I thought, you know what, I'm not quite ready to go to law school. Uh, so I decided to do a one-year master's um, at Oxford University uh, in a refugee studies program. And that program was interdisciplinary and it also had a strong legal component to it. Um, the Refuge, International Refugee Convention is a legal instrument. Um, the categorization of an individual as a refugee or not is a legal test. So a lot of what we did was explore the legal dimensions of um, statelessness and, and migration. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed that. And again, the legal uh, approach was something that really resonated with me. We were we also we were also taught by anthropologists, historians, sociologists, political scientists, but it was really the legal um, course that we took that stood out for me. So then I decided um, that I was going to apply to law school. But before going to law school, I'd said, uh, "Well, why don't I do something different for a little while?" And so I up and left for India, and I was there for about a year. Wow. Um, and I was uh, documenting the rights of refugees in India, um, and that sort of even more solidified my conviction that law is where I want to be because it was very difficult to be of any assistance to someone without having the, um, the background and the license, the professional license to advocate on behalf of them, mm-hmm. of these individuals. It's, it's interesting because when you were um, describing, uh, even from going into your master's and then spending time in India, a lot of those themes uh, center around uh, immigration and emigration, refugee yes. uh, aspects. And is that something that still interests you today, even as a constitutional and criminal lawyer? So there's a personal dimension to my interest in immigration. For the first 10 years of my life, my my family was basically nomadic. So my mom um, is from uh, former Czechoslovakia, Slovakia, um, and my dad is Nigerian, and they met in Slovakia, and that's where I was born. Um, And we lived in Slovakia and Nigeria and Austria um, and the Netherlands before finally settling in Canada uh, at the age of 10. So... That experience um, really shaped me as a person. Um, it, re- it created my interest in understanding or trying to, to study human experiences that transcend artificial borders that we create for ourselves and trying to understand the ways in which those borders um, amplify uh, injustice or amplify differences that are completely manufactured, mm-hmm. I would say. So um, I think because of my early experience as somebody who traveled around a lot and finally found a home in Canada, um, the idea of studying how other people engage in or how other people negotiate their identity in the face of globalization and um, the significance of borders has always been something that interested me. Mm. What what do you think you took most from your time in India uh, and coming back? And do you think that's had an impact on how you approach law today? So among the groups of refugees that I worked with were a small group of Somali refugees that lived in New Delhi. And um, among all the various groups of refugees that I encountered, so there were Afghani refugees, um, Tibetan refugees, um, Burmese refugees. So for, among all the groups that I encountered, I think the Somali refugees were the most vulnerable because they did not have a pre-arranged agreement with the state of India regarding their status. So they were floating around quite stateless without access to to, to state resources, um, any kind of social welfare and access to housing and access to employment were also limited. But in addition to that, uh, they also faced... Um, a lot of racial discrimination and that is something that I uh, that sort of stood out for me because the other groups of refugees were all from neighboring countries around and to, to a certain extent were able to somewhat integrate into society um, but the Somali refugees uh, did not were not able to do that and it, they just they they were quite vulnerable mm-hmm. and it sort of drove home for me the idea or the the reality that without proper representation and recognition by a state, an individual is, is quite vulnerable. Right. So now you've got 
um, you know, this experience and, and seeing what you have, which is very rare compared to, I'm sure, uh, your contemporaries in law school, you go into it with this very global perspective and, um, really exceeded you know what what I've um, seen is that you had a very involved student life at McGill uh, the faculty of law you ultimately became the gold medalist um, along with several other awards Um, and really you know as you read your bio um, you sort of achieved the um, archetypal student law student that that everyone kind of strives toward you ultimately clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada and I I'm curious, um, where do you think this drive for um, really excellence comes from? Like, this this just doesn't happen. There has to be this real push and determination to be able to achieve these things. Do you feel that there is, like, was it your global experiences? Was it from your parents? Is there something that really pushed you to achieve this? I think the push comes from uh, inside me. It's, in, it's internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been... An, an ambitious person uh, and somebody who wants to find out what my limits are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have always set goals uh, and then devised plans on how to achieve them. Uh, and I think that comes from, I think it's, it's an internally, it's a, it's a personality trait, I would say, but I think it also comes from the experience that I have um, of almost in all circumstances, being a kind of outsider. So um, always being the, the new kid in, in school, having to prove myself. Um, in, uh, so when I was growing up, um, being sort of usually in the minority of whatever group I'm in, uh, as a female and as a female of color, uh, and as a female of color who's also an immigrant, um, I, I've always felt this sense that I have to um, prove myself and I have to exceed uh, expectations. Uh, and that's sort of traveled with me throughout my life. And it's given me this drive to always push harder um, and and to do the work to make sure that I get the results that I want. Mm-hmm. So if I know that in order to accomplish something, you need to put in X number of hours, I will do X times 30. Because the way I, I approach things, it's from my nature. Um, so it is, I think it is very internally driven. Uh, and it also sort of comes from um, my experience as uh, as an outsider and somebody who really does feel that they have to prove themselves. And there's, I think that's a common narrative for people who are um, the minority in whatever communi- community or, or career that they're chosen. They have to overcome their lack of connections, their lack of, of um, entrenchment in a system by exceeding expectations and by striving for excellence uh, completely. Mm-hmm. When you're describing this, I'm I, I'm reminded of a book I read recently by Angela Duckworth called Grit. And yes, it have, yeah. And so yeah. you know, you, you seem to be describing the very phenomenon that she has touched upon that people who uh, have this drive, you know, like you say, do the work times a hundred, yeah. and that seems to be what makes the difference. And and looking at uh, what you've accomplished at such a young age, um, clearly you 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 uh, you have that, but. People, um, you know, all have their different motivations. Is there any sort of general advice you could give to, you know, younger lawyers who look at you and and say, you know, I want to one day achieve or or try and accomplish um, something close to what Anna Maria has? Um, What advice would you give to a young law student? Uh, To make a plan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen accidentally. Uh, If you have a desire to work for... um, a certain firm, or if you have a desire to clerk at the Supreme Court, make a plan about how you're going to get there, ask for advice, and then slowly start implementing the plan. There are a lot of people who desire to clerk at the Supreme Court of Canada, but don't turn their minds to how to do that until they're in their final year of law school, and it's too late, I think, at that point to think about it. Um, If you have an interest in clerking or if you have an interest in working in a particular firm Mm -hmm. then do the homework to figure out what you need to do to get there uh, and write out a plan and uh, ask for advice and and assistance Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, you, you touched upon this a, a little bit um, just in your answer, and I, I, it segues nicely into um, an article that was written in November 2017 by Hedia Roderick, uh, published a very powerful piece in the Globe and Mail entitled Black on Bay Street that touched upon many challenges black lawyers face in the profession. In the article, she describes uh, systemic, uh, subversive, and uh, debilitating disadvantages that black law students face in obtaining a position, and once obtained, the challenges um, black and other racialized lawyers face in trying to um, work effectively and succeed within their roles. And when this article was published, um, you know, I noticed that you tweeted it and described it as a quote, rich and thoughtful piece. So I'm, I'm going to assume that many of the issues resonated with you and, and stoked a certain empathy towards her. And what advice, you know, beyond what you just passed on for law students in general, what advice do you have for law students or young lawyers struggling with the many issues that Hedia describes? I think we're very fortunate to be members of a bar where our our law society is slowly beginning to recognize and act upon these systemic barriers. So the advice that I would give to law students or young lawyers who are facing the kinds of issues that uh, Hadia Roderick described in her article is to reach out to senior members of the bar who you believe can become your allies. Because I think that that's so important for success, having people who will stand up for you, who will advocate for you. And there are senior members of the bar who are outspoken about this issue, who courageously have stood up for junior members of the bar and for law students, and who are recognizing that this is a huge problem and that something needs to be done about the lack of diversity in the legal profession. And I would also counsel young advocates and students to just take a step back and recognize that their very existence in this space is an act of resistance and to pat themselves on the back for that, for just showing up and not to be too hard on themselves. Show yourself some compassion the same way that you would show compassion for others and recognize that you are deserving of support and that you deserve to be here just like anybody else. So really demand of your profession that it treat you with the dignity and respect that you so rightfully deserve and that you've earned. Do so by reaching out to members of the bar and uh, demanding that you are represented at the table. What would you say to um, a student, you know, as you described, um, who feels reluctant that they couldn't possibly call you know, someone as esteemed as your partner, for example, Clayton Ruby, or or someone of that caliber where you think, well, I really would like to talk to them about this issue, but I feel they're just going to hang up on the phone because they're too busy. Or Have you had that experience yourself? That somebody hangs up on me because they're too busy? <laughs> yeah. Like, do you find that the bar is generally open to these discussions, those people that you're seeking to find allies with? Yes. But again, don't cold call people. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be respectful of, of people's time, but put in, uh, in, in, in today's, uh, like today with the proliferation of social media, mm-hmm. put in the time to just research people who you know are writing, speaking, tweeting about the issues that you are passionate about. And if you're on Twitter and you say, oh, wow, the senior partner at this prestigious firm is saying, like, look at my statement of principles. This is what I yeah. uh, hope to hope to bring um, to this very critical issue, then look at that as an invitation to start a conversation with that person. Um, And I would counsel people, uh, I would counsel young advocates to not restrict their search for allies and mentors to their own um, cultural or or ethnic group. I think that's one mistake that people often make. Um, You have to seek allies everywhere. And um, my experience as somebody with a very mixed background uh, is that you often don't know the background that a person has um, just by looking at them. You don't know whether they um, have deeply encountered an issue or have encountered an issue to, to such a great depth that they will be able to understand and help and communicate um, with you at the level that you need. We should not underestimate people's compassion. Um, And so in seeking allies and in seeking support, 
do reach out to people who have publicly expressed that they are going that they're willing to be champions mm-hmm. for diversity yeah it's it, uh, you raise a very um, interesting point that social media allows for this type of communication and you know i, I see you're very active on social media and i mm-hmm. think that's wonderful because it provides a, a very important perspective to a lot of law students and other lawyers to sort of see um, uh, these issues. Um, so I'll ask you, what other benefits uh, do you find from social media? It's a question I ask a lot of our guests because a lot of other people, and lawyers yeah. in particular, don't see the value in it. Uh, what do you get from it? Aside from the sort of more general benefit of having being able to have my finger on the pulse of um, what's going on in my chosen legal community. Um, I also have found clients on social media. I have found expert witnesses on mm-hmm. social media. Uh, I've been alerted to studies and um, cases that I find critical for something I'm about to plead on social media. Um, the speed with which social media allows for you to receive curated material that is relevant to your areas of interest uh, is very, very critical, I think, for a lawyer that's practicing in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll ask you a question that I ask almost everyone. I want to know, what does a great day look like for you? What is some of those days that you just feel great about in a professional capacity as a lawyer? Mm. That's a really interesting question because I think that there are hundreds of configurations of what a good day looks like. But if we drill down to what the essence of a good day is, then it would, um, for me, it would be the feeling at the end of the day that uh, I have done my absolute best with what I set out to do today. So be it submissions in court or a trial, be it just writing in my office, which is what I, I do a lot. I spend a lot of time writing in my office or planning or strategizing or be it finding or trying to track down the perfect expert witness who has an expertise precisely in this area that I, that I um, want to uh, elicit evidence about. Um, all of those things, I think, are core to my practice Um, But I also like the fact that my practice allows for excellence in sort of very discrete areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, another example of of what I would like to happen on a good day is a client says, you know, thank you so much for all the work that you are doing for me. I appreciate, uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. You've really helped me through a difficult time. How do you balance that, though, with... um the pressures of the job, right? There, there are so many pressures, particularly as a criminal defense lawyer. Um, is there some sort of activity or release that you have that clears your mind to, you know, go uh, for another day, especially on the days that aren't so great and difficult days? Uh, I think that there's nothing that a good night's sleep can't cure. <laughs> <laughs> I just, if I can't, if I can't figure something out by the end of the day, I just let it go and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So simple. Yeah. So so effective. What do you see as the essentials of advocacy? You're working in one of Canada's top litigation firms, and surely you've learned a lot of great insights from your partners. Um, If you had an inscription on your desk to sort of live by as an advocate, what do you think it would say? Preparation. Yeah. (laughs) It would just say preparation. Preparation. Yeah. Period. Period. (laughs) Just prepare. Yeah. Preparation well in advance. Very boring, but so critical. The flip side of that is what is um, a piece of advice that you hear lawyers um, espousing all the time that you think is just terrible, very misguided? Uh, so I, you've posed that question to a number of other lawyers on your podcast, and I thought about it, and I don't think that I can think off the top of my head of a piece of advice that I thought was completely whack. Mm -hmm. I tend not to elicit advice from people who I think are going (laughs) to give me bad advice. Um, or I sort of advice right there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that there's a piece of advice that I've, I've gotten that I thought was ill conceived. Um, what about, um, another question I, you've probably heard a few times is, is there some, particular um, relic or ritual that you love doing before a big case or or afterwards you know for example a breakfast at a particular place or a favorite pen that you just have to have during court 
No. No. I have no rituals. I have no superstitions, no habits like that. No. All business. <laughs> well, well, I'm, <laughs> I just not, I'm not a very superstitious person. Um, I think that's interesting though, because yeah. that takes a, a, a very strong mental fortitude. I think part of the reason people have relics and things like that is it gives them comfort. But um, from your earlier comment about preparation, yeah, um, the, the the favorite pen doesn't do much. But no, the, it doesn't. But the preparation <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, does yeah, a lot. Yeah, just the prep. I think preparation is enough. I think if I if I uh, instituted a, a, some kind of ritual or habit, it would just add stress to me because I would forget it. Yeah. <laughs> what about, um, what about coming down from a really, um, difficult day, right? You, you watch a client get convicted for example, sure it doesn't happen often for you, but if it did, <laughs> or, uh, you just have a very long day of writing, um, is there something that you like to do to, um, try and clear your head from that? Uh, well, I've been practicing meditation on and off for about uh, 10 years now. Mm. And, uh, I've been practicing it more sort of systematically and rigorously in the past five years. Um, and it's completely changed my, my life. Um, I have a very short meditation practice. It's 10 minutes a day. Um, but I make sure to do that at the same time every day. Sometimes like I often fail at that. Um, because it's just so difficult to to be able to time uh, for the same time every day. But I do make sure that at every uh, that almost every day I take a moment um, and just be completely present in the moment and try to be mindful and bring my attention to my breath and try to leave the floating thoughts that I have in my mind, let them float uh, and be sort of entrenched in the present moment for a couple of seconds, um, if I can, longer. Uh, and that I think really has really helped me to develop uh, equanimity in times of crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's so valuable because, you know, as criminal defense lawyers, it's permanently times of crises. Yeah. You know, we're moving yeah. from crisis to crisis. And, you know, w- what is also interesting about that comment is, um, if, I don't know if you've read any of uh, Tim Ferriss's work, but mm-hmm. he's done. Ten- uh, two books for our, our listeners is uh, Tribe of Mentors and uh, Tools of Titans. And yeah. almost every person that he interviews in that uh, says that one of the key points of their success of all these incredibly successful people in their own fields is meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we could all learn a lot from that. He also has a book called A Four Hour Work Week, I think. Four yeah. Hour Work Week, yeah. I don't think we can do that as criminal defense lawyers. I don't think so. Four <laughs> Hour Work Week slash 24 Hour a Day phone calls. Yeah. He right. also advocates for not sleeping eight hours a day, but taking six 30 minute naps throughout the day or something That'll like that. That'll go overwhelm the court. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honor, just a brief indulgence. <laughs> brief indulgence. <laughs> brief indulgence for half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you never know. Maybe we'll get to that. We, we could yeah. have a very progressive judge who has read the same books and, and things at <laughs> um, time. Yeah, I think, I think um, my interest in the, the physiological and um, n- neuro effects of meditation has only grown over time as it's, have an, as it's had a positive impact on me. But also, as I approach incredibly stressful situations, I'm the kind of person who if I, like I've, uh, when I have, uh, so I've had a panic attack in the past. And when I have a pan, when I had the panic attack, I, I wanted to know exactly what is going on. Mm-hmm. So um, consulting with a psychiatrist who was able to uh, assist me in understanding what happens when you have a panic attack, that spurred me to do additional research on the kinds of chemicals that are being released in your body when you have a panic attack, what triggers them. So I've, I've done a lot of sort of uh, introspection and personal research as a result of my experience. And from that, I've learned that um, there really is strong science behind the benefits of meditation. Uh, it impacts the hormones that are released in your body. Um, it, you're, there's a strong connection between the breath and the brain um, in terms of calming you down from anxiety. And adoption, the adoption of breathing exercises, um, I also practice yoga, so yogic breathing exercises like pranayama are very powerful in 
changing your mood. Mm -hmm. And I think being able to integrate those kinds of practices into your life are, or for in my experience, have been very, very helpful in getting me through very difficult situations. What's really fascinating about that is as you're describing it, it seems like you've approached um, a problem you face that many lawyers face. I mean, we know that um, stress and and other issues affecting lawyers, in particular litigators, is very high. But you've approached this problem, it seems to me anyway, the same way you would approach your cases, which is preparation, (laughs) review it, (laughs) research, find the best expert, and and find a solution, which... uh, I really only have one mode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's well, it's a good mode to have that and sleep. And it's yeah, yeah it's perfect. Um, but I also have to say that I think it's it may be easier for me than for uh, perhaps more senior lawyers, because I, I grew up and sort of came uh, came of age in the law at a time when it when people were recognizing that there are very serious mental health issues among mm-hmm. lawyers and very serious substance abuse issues among lawyers. And the stigma was being removed when I began practicing law. So I felt very comfortable um, recognizing that these kinds of uh, issues were was something that I was facing and I felt no shame in speaking openly about it um, and treating it as a problem or an, an issue that requires me to address it through research and getting my you know support systems in place and my support systems include uh, Clayton Ruby and Brian Schiller, like they're incredibly supportive of me. Um, and, but I, I really think that it's much easier for me to do it because we are in a time and space in their legal profession where we're recognizing that more harm is done by ignoring and casting shame on these issues than, um, being able to openly speak about it because the solutions, uh, exist, and the only thing that's preventing a lot of people from getting assistance is uh, shame and uh, no access to resources. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because certainly there was a, a day and age uh, where it's just suck it up and go to court. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have to somehow um, numb the pain through other ways. And, yeah. and it, it is fortunate. And it's good even now you're talking about it because I think it... Um, lets other lawyers um, accept that this is something that they shouldn't be stifling and, and right. should deal with. Yeah. Um, moving into a new area, you handle a lot of uh, very high-profile cases within your firm. And I wonder if in the course of those, uh, without getting into the particulars of any case um, specifically, but are there valuable lessons you've learned to how to properly conduct yourself or handle media? Because this is always a big challenge for lawyers to try and understand, you know, should I just say no comment or run from the press? Right. Uh, is there an approach that you generally take? Yes. In in uh, high-profile cases, the, um, the approach to media is something that I always discuss with the client. So the, the tone has to be set by the client, and their desire is what governs my approach to the media. Generally, I think it's a good idea not to start litigating cases in front of the media. It doesn't make any sense, and it commits you to statements that you may not they may not be able to back away from in the future. So I think there's a forum for litigation, and it is the courtroom. It's not the courthouse steps. So I tend to stay away from, from that approach. But oftentimes... Um, a client will uh, have uh, an agenda related to the publicity about their case that I have to find a way to fit inside. Um, And that is something that I always speak to the client directly about. So we talk about the case strategy and then on, if it's it's a verdict day or judgment day, I have this like, flow chart that I create with the client that says guilty, what to do, not guilty, what to do, where to go. But it absolutely has to be driven by the best interest of the client, mm-hmm. not the best interest of myself or how much publicity I can get out of it. That should um, that should uh, be put to the wayside. Which, of course, is very different from 
advocacy on broader social issues because in another um, forum altogether, not on specific clients, you are um, very active and persuasive and, and, and frankly influential on um, aspects that are important to you. And one in particular I've noted as of, as of late um, is the legalization of cannabis. And it was only what, last week that you were before the Senate? Yes. Uh, talking about Bill C-45 um, and particularly how it relates to the stigmatization of past criminal convictions and the history of over-criminalizing uh, Canadians of color. And so I, I, I'm, uh, I have a few questions coming from that. First of all, I want to know, uh, tell me about your experience um, at the Senate and what essentially, what are the issues that you were touching upon? I think it's important that these issues get expressed now on C45 and some of the issues you share. So um, I was representing or speaking on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association along with an Ottawa criminal defense attorney, uh, Michael Spratt, and we uh, presented submissions to the Senate on uh, that are basically that were critiquing Bill C forty five. The ones that the submissions that I was responsible for presenting was on the uh, absence of any mechanism by which to address the previous stigma attached to criminal convictions related to cannabis, as well as the collateral immigration consequences um, that would be brought in along with Bill C-45. And um, just to interject, what I think is really interesting about this discussion is the narrative is just this sort of catchphrase of legalization. Right. And no one seems to understand the content, or very few people, I should say, yes. understand what that means in practice. What does that mean when, for example, um, this is going to be applied in um, on, on uh, in a particular community? Or what does it mean when a person who isn't a full Canadian citizen uh, could face certain deportation orders and things like that? And I know you touched upon that, and I'm, I'm very curious, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful that you can um, expand upon that so that people can understand what does this mean for Canadians on the issues that you discussed? Okay, so I guess we'll start off by um, answering the first question is, uh, why is Bill C-45 so disappointing? Mm-hmm. And Bill C-45 is so disappointing because it is billed as a, a legalization of cannabis bill, but it in fact is a very narrow legalization. It uh, continues to criminalize cannabis and in fact creates more offenses relating to cannabis than it eliminates. So it creates a very complex regulatory regime for the consumption, distribution, and importation of cannabis. Um, and the regime is, is, is quite complex and quite daunting. Um, it's a multi-page bill that it's, it's, it's quite difficult for the average Canadian to understand what's going on with the substance and what the government is trying to accomplish through this bill. Mm-hmm. My understanding from my work with activists who have been advocating for the legalization of cannabis, as well as uh, being able to have access to previous reports by the government that outline the impetus for this bill. Um, from, from, from those areas, what I had understood that the bill was trying to accomplish is to right the wrongs that had been done by the government uh, in relation to cannabis over the course of decades. Uh, the criminalization of cannabis has resulted in, um, in extremely detrimental impacts on people's lives, including their uh, denied uh, jobs, meaningful employment, they could be denied housing, access to their children, uh, denied ability to cross the border for the possession of simple, uh, for a simple possession offense, which is quite a harmless offense, but because it's so widely prosecuted has affected hundreds and thousands of Canadians over time. Right. And I should just add, um, you know, a lot of uh, the prosecutions uh, of these offenses are disproportionately applied to already stigmatized groups, um, you know, disadvantaged groups, um, particularly Indigenous people, um, uh, people of color. And uh, I don't know if you read the article, but there was uh, a Vice uh, News article, I think it was about a month ago, sort of going through the statistics of this. So what do you, uh, do you see any uh, amplification of these issues for those groups uh, within the legalization? We know that the laying of charges and arrests for cannabis offenses 
depends a lot on the exercise of discretion by police officers. And we know that that exercise of discretion has not always been done equally um, across populations. We know that, um, for example, in Toronto, there have been statistics showing that an individual is more likely to be charged rather than warned or arrested rather than warned by a police officer for the possession of the exact same amount of cannabis if they are black or brown than if they're white. And so in the um, aggregation of all the statistics that we have about cannabis convictions, we see a pattern that develops as a result of the exercise of discretion in this discriminatory way, which is that we have the overrepresentation of black and brown Canadians among the pool of people who have been uh, criminalized by cannabis. Um, that in my mind is hugely problematic because it shows that the promise that all Canadians are equal before the law is a myth. And it's, a, and it's something that has to be addressed and there are still people who are denying that it is, it is in fact the case. Um, and through the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty, what myself and other lawyers and activists and uh, academics are trying to do is force the government to confront that nasty history of criminalization and the fact that criminalization of cannabis amplified inequalities within society because of the stigma attached to cannabis, but also because of the discriminatory way in which these laws were enforced throughout the country. And so you just mentioned um, the organization uh, Cannabis Amnesty, and you actually have a website, can yes. cannabisamnesty.ca, and you can go there to sign a petition. What does that petition, uh, what is that petition about? So the petition um, is uh, an ask to the government. We're asking the, the government of Canada that along with the legalization of cannabis, which they are attempting to usher in, that they also, uh, parallel to that, implement uh, granting of pardons for all simple possession offenses uh, that are on the books now people have been convicted of. So we know that there are approximately uh, 500,000, I think, people who have cannabis convictions on their records. And those convictions will remain on their records uh, on the day that cannabis is legalized. So we are asking the government, this is a, it's a small ask. It's not a, uh, it's not a, I don't think in any way, um, controversial in the sense that it, this isn't an offense that has caused great harm to society. Um, it's usually the vast majority of the people who have these convictions are young uh, individuals who um, for a youthful indiscretion uh, have, are, are now living with a conviction for the rest of their lives. And if I heard you correctly, it seems like there's a disproportionate amount of convictions for people of color and indigenous people that That's that correct. needs to be recognized as well. Yes. And of course, um, uh, I infer from that that, you know, what we, we know just in general is that um, a lot of these groups are already systemically at a disadvantage and combine a criminal conviction with that and trying to apply for jobs. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. This is a big problem. Right. It, it, it amplifies the marginalization that these people face, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a general concern that I have about criminal justice to begin with. But... Putting that aside, uh, it's particularly pronounced in this case because the uh, legacy of a criminal conviction, um, I think, is becoming so disproportionate to the value of having a small conviction on the books for whatever investigative purpose um, police services claim that it might serve. Uh, it's so disproportionate because it follows somebody for the rest of their lives. And it makes no sense because a lot of these people don't get custodial sentences. They are given absolute discharges or um, or other sentences like that because our, our courts recognize that the moral culpability and the seriousness of the crime is not as great as other crimes that we have in the criminal code or the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. And so it's important for sentences to reflect the seriousness of the crime. And 
yet the legacy of those sentences continue to haunt people for the rest of their lives. It's, it seems to me as, to be something that's so disproportionate and so unfair that a person who has served their sentence continues to be burdened and plagued by a conviction. Um, and that conviction will prevent them from reintegrating into society and becoming productive members of society. Particularly when it's now going to be quote-unquote legalized. <laughs> exactly. It, well, particularly in this in this case, I think generally in uh, crimes in general, I think sure. I, I also have a problem with, with keeping criminal records beyond a certain number of, of years. I think mm-hmm. it's not productive. Um, but definitely for something that is no longer criminal, what purpose does it serve? And the the pushback that I've gotten from people is, well, it was a crime at the time, so they should they should have been punished. And my response is, well, they were. They served their sentence. And what I'm what we're asking is that it's that the conviction is removed so that they don't continue serving a legacy sentence. Um, by having it st- by having these convictions remain on the books, these are people who have been punished i 'm not trying to go back in in time or say that people who are being arrested right now should not be convicted of this offense that 's not what we 're asking. These are people who are convicted of the offense, served their sentence they 've been given a punishment by the society so served that punishment and uh, some people eighteen this is eighteen twenty twenty five years later are still living with that and are unable to cross the border to the united states it's it's a it's it's a continued imposition of a sentence that's disproportionate to the crime right and and i think too i mean that line of reasoning the uh, you know countering to say that this was a criminal offense at one point is very disingenuous because we can look back into history and see all sorts of crazy offenses to do with homosexuality, um, beliefs in church that we're now, you know, we scoff at the idea that those were once crime. Um, so again, it's, it's www.cannabisamnesty.ca and then backslash petition. I encourage everyone to go and, and sign. Um, and just before we move away from, from cannabis, I think it's important that our listeners appreciate, you know, because c- we touched upon how small these um, infractions may be. Mm-hmm. And even with the new Cannabis Act um, legislation, um, have you come across any sort of ab- absurdities of what could still be considered an offense and, and how severe some of the consequences could be? The Cannabis Act actually raises the maximum sentence for a number of cannabis-related offenses. So the offense of distributing to a minor now has a maximum sentence of 14 years. And, but just to sort of interrupt, but when people hear that from a, you know, like a, the news bite, they hear distributing to a minor and they think that's terrible. But what does that actually mean in practice? In practice, it means uh, an 18-year-old sitting on the steps of their uh, public library passing a joint to a 17-year-old. That is trafficking to a minor. And and what would be the sanctions attributed to that? Well, it would be an offense that person is found is convicted of it can serve a sentence of up to 14 years in jail. And beyond that, um, you know, one of the things that you talked about at the Senate were how, is how disproportionate that one act of passing. Let's say, you know, 18 year old passes it off to a buddy um, and they're not a Canadian citizen. What happens to them? Right. So uh, under the uh, Immigration Refugee Protection Act, there are provisions that make an individual who is not a Canadian citizen uh, what's called criminally inadmissible in Canada. Um, Criminal inadmissibility stems from two potential factors. One is that the individual receives a sentence in fact that is over six months in prison and the other is that they are convicted of an offense and regardless of what the actual sentence is the offense itself carries a a maximum of over 10 years so raising the maximum sentence for a number of cannabis related offenses beyond 10 years makes a permanent resident uh, or um, other individual in Canada who does not have citizenship subject to deportation upon conviction and so that leaves a huge swath of our population in Canada quite vulnerable to deportation. Right. So here you have a situation where, you know, an 18-year-old who came from Syria as a refugee uh, is now facing a deportation order because they haven't yet obtained their citizenship. Yes. Um, 
and that's just a tip of the iceberg, I'm sure. Um, and I encourage you know all of our listeners to watch um, Anna Maria talk about this in great detail in, in the Senate. You can go to Send View and and watch it all there. So <clears throat> back into broader issues. This is a question I ask everyone: If you could change or tweak or even reverse uh, one Supreme Court of Canada case, what is is there one case that you've always had a particular problem with? Uh, yes. I think it's important that we revisit a case that fundamentally shaped the way we think about the relationship between the state and the individual. The case that I have in mind that I find quite disappointing and distressing and that I absolutely do not like and would and would like to have seen it changed is uh, Malmo Levine. Um, so that case answers the question of what do we do when a citizen breaks the law and there's no identifiable harm? Um, in Malmo Levine, the Supreme Court of Canada stated that the harm principle has no place in, in our constitutional order, and therefore the government of Canada is free to legislate something as a crime in the absence of harm. And I find that very distressing because when we look at the issues that we're facing today that plague our justice system, um, we're looking at issues such as delay, uh, issues such as the fact that our criminal system is somehow asked to remedy social and economic problems. I think all of these core inefficiencies and insufficiencies of the criminal justice system stem from the fact that it is bloated by nonsense it does not need to be concerned about. And if we focus our criminal justice system very narrowly, to remedy harms that people cause to each other, I think we will have a much more efficient system that is not concerned with policing morality or policing the private choices that people make about their bodies, about their minds, about their property. If we just leave that and focus on criminal harms, I think the, the criminal justice system will be much more efficient in a lot of the problems that we face today will be um, will, will be remedied. We're struggling to find ways to make the criminal justice system more efficient. Um, the federal government just tabled Bill C-75, which in my view is one of the worst pieces of uh, criminal reform legislation that the government has tabled to date. And we see that it's struggling to cut corners uh, and create efficiencies in the system at the expense of the core values of the system, which is due process and fundamental justice. And I think that is because the criminal system is being, criminal justice system is being used to solve problems that is not equipped to solve. There are so many issues that come before courts on a daily basis that are mental health issues, that are physical health issues, that are psychological issues people face that are socioeconomic issues and that are legacies of colonialism and residential schools. And we use the blunt instrument of the criminal justice system uh, to address these issues and it's not working. And we need, to, we need to recognize that, we need to admit it and we need to go back to the drawing board. We can't just have band-aid solutions. I, that's incredibly insightful, and um, I hope one day that you make it to the Supreme Court of Canada as a justice. Oh, as a and justice. Back there, and you can <laughs> First, I have it. to make it as an appellant or respondent. <laughs> no, direct appointment if it were up to me. And uh, you can change all of that for the country. Thank you so much, Anna Maria. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having Thanks. me.